0: So nice to see all of you here today, and we are celebrating what a wonderful time we've enjoyed already. Now, uh, since I want to be sure you're wide awake, I want you all to stand up, stretch good, and then sit down again. (laughs) And don't let this big book scare you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Pastor, for having us here. This is a great time for us to be here and to celebrate with you. I remember when I uh, was about 21 years old. That would have been a long time ago. (laughs) I called Dr. C.A. Gibson, who was then district superintendent of the Old Ohio District, which was a long time ago, and uh, I had just got a new job, and one of the first jobs I'd ever had that was a paying job after the Great Depression. Some of you went through that, as we did. And uh, I said, uh, "I've got a good job, I've got a good salary, and I'm enjoying it. But God's called me to preach. You don't by any chance to have a place that I could uh, start?" He said, "Young man, exactly what you said. I have a great opportunity for you." <laughs> you said, "Did I ask him what the salary was?" Of course not. No salary. I was a, a vocational. It wasn't in those days you didn't get a salary when you first started out. And so uh, we moved to Medina, and that would be 67 years ago. And we started this church. And uh, there's some interesting things happened during that time. Uh, I went down to the uh, meat market one day. My wife sent me down to buy some bologna. That's all we could afford And uh, the meat uh, man over that counter leaned over and said, what can I do for you, Sonny? (laughs) I stood up in my full five foot six height, said, sir, my name name is not Sonny. (laughs) Oh, he said, I'm sorry, you must be new in town. I said, I am new in town. What are you doing here? I said, I'm going to be the pastor of the first church of the Nazarene in Medina, Ohio. He scratched his head and he said, well, you know, I never heard of the church of the Nazarene. And I doubt if anyone else in all of Medina had ever heard of the church of the Nazarene. Do you realize that at that time, 1941, that means the church was only 33, denomination was only 33 years old. And uh, I said, well, you may not have heard of it, but you're going to hear of the Medina Church of the Nazarene because we have come here, we've come here to study. And I uh, got up to preach my first sermon, and I'll say something about that later, but one of the ladies in the church, I had studied the whole Bible from generation to revolution. <laughs> I'd studied the whole thing, and I thought I had enough material to last me for an hour. And I always preach fast, and so uh, this lady came up to me, and I'll tell you who she was, Mrs. Barber. She's gone to heaven now. She said, the only one thing wrong with your sermons is that you preach too fast. I said, Mrs. Barber, you just think too slow. (laughs) We were in the hall just across the alley from... uh, fashionable Methodist church downtown. That's where we had our first service. No air conditioner or anything like that. No fans or anything like that. And uh, we uh, opened the windows on the alley and we had a small congregation, but this has always been a singing church. And we were singing and somebody told me that next week, That the pastor said when they get done singing over there, we're going to sing. (laughs) So we must have been loud enough that we disturbed their services. But we've had some interesting experiences, but it's been a wonderful journey. Now, I'm not a long-winded preacher because I feel that anyone who preaches with the yard ought to be kicked with the foot. He really should. And I read just the other day when a little article in one of those little things that you turn over every day and see what whether you want to stay stay up or whether you want to go back to bed, and it said sermons like biscuits are best with shortening. <laughs> so I took that to heart. Pastor said I think you can do it in about twenty minutes, and I think I can do that if you want to set your watch and look at it. It won't be any longer than that. I'll get through in a good time. Ephesians 5, verses 25 through 27. Christ also loved the church, and he gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having a spot or a wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. The church church is an organization, but it is more than an organization. The Church is a living organism ordained of God for the purpose of propagating the gospel of Jesus Christ. God's plan for making himself known in the world is through the people who are called by his name, and friends, he has no other plan. And since the Church is made up of people like you and me and thousands and millions of others just like us, it will never be a perfect organization. But God has deigned to place his treasure... In earthen vessels. Now let's follow that line of thought for just a while. An earthen vessel is a ceramic, is it not? That's right. And of course, ceramics are capable of becoming marred or cracked. And if that is true, one more step, then they might be called psycho ceramics (laughs) or crackpots. (laughs) And during 35 years of pastoring, and uh, 12 years as district superintendent, and uh, then evangelizing and doing faith promise conventions all over the country in the last number of years, I've run across a few people who I would say uh, were ceramics. <laughs> but as a part of the church, we are identified with its shortcomings and its failures. But if we are faithful to God, then we will share in its rewards. Jesus and his apostles were, on, were in Caesarea Philippi, where Jesus was preparing them for the assignment, which would be theirs after he was gone. You know this scripture. He said, Whom do men say that I am? One of them spoke up, said, Some they Jeremiah, the reincarnation of the old weeping prophet. And he said, "They Probably because of the master's great compassion, he was never too busy to minister to those who were in need. Someone else spoke up and says, there are others who say that you are the reincarnation of John the Baptist. And that probably was true because the death of John the Baptist was not publicized because he was so popular. And others spoke up and said, well, still others say that you are the reincarnation of Elijah. Probably because Elijah went to heaven in a chariot of fire and was witnessed only by his successor, that was Elisha. Then Jesus asked the question that was important to him, but who do you say that I am? Peter, the spokesman for the group, said, you are, we believe you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And then Jesus said, upon this rock, the rock of a true confession, I will build my church. And even the powers and gates of hell will not prevail against it. From my childhood, the church has occupied the center of my life because of a Christian home. I was raised in a Christian home. I was carried to church as a baby. My mother felt that if she took the baby to church first, they'd grow up in the church. And that happened to be the way it was because all six, all the boys in our family became Nazarene preachers. And few Sundays have found me outside of the walls of a church someplace. I can vividly remember the colorful nursery, kindergarten department of chairs. Arranged in a circle around the teacher, and the teacher, much too large for the chairs, sat among us like a mother hen, taking care of her little ones. I don't remember a thing that she said, but I remember her. I can remember that. She had a permanent and influence upon my life. When I was 12 years old, I found the Lord at the church altar, and I can take you to the spot today where I prayed through and met the Lord in my salvation. I prayed clear through, and I know exactly where it was. And from that moment on, I knew I was called to preach. Even though I was only 12 years old, I knew that I was going to be a preacher. knew God was calling me. The fact is, I preached my first sermon to my classmates under the creek bridge after our lunch in that little country school. We took our first pastorate opportunity when I was 21 years old. There's only six present for that first service, but I couldn't have been more thrilled if it would have been a cathedral with a thousand people out there listening to me preach. Salary, it never occurred to me that I was supposed to expect a salary. I was to be a bivocational, and I counted it a privilege to have a place where I could fulfill my calling. Thank God for these beautiful facilities that we have here. Thank God for the beautiful places that we can invite our friends and don't have to be embarrassed to invite them to a hall or something like that. But we have a place we don't have to be embarrassed to bring them. We have been abundantly rewarded through the years to make the church the center of our lives. And today, I wouldn't exchange places with the best situated man in this entire world that is outside of the will of God. That's way I feel. I will love it. I will defend its doctrines. I will support it. And I'll do my best to improve it as long as I live. Now you have my outline. First of all, the church is mine to love. If I love the church, I will invest the energies of my life to help it fulfill the redemptive mission for which Christ and God has sent it into the world. I have found, you know, that the church is full of willing people. Isn't that great? The church is full of willing people. Half of them are willing to work. The other half are willing to let them. They're all... (laughs) They're all willing people. <laughs> but if we really love the church, we'll become actively involved in its ministry. I'm sure you've heard the story of the foreign tourist who went to see an American football game for the first time. And they asked him his impression after the game was over. He said, I saw 22 men on the field desperately in need of rest. And 50,000 of us in the stands desperately in need of exercise. <laughs> Believe it or not, like it or not, we must admit that the church moves by the efforts of the inner circle. That's not the social circle. That is the committed circle. Have you ever thought what would happen if we could get everybody into the game? Wouldn't that be wonderful? we just get everybody to put forth the effort into the game. If we really love the church, we'll do nothing to depreciate its effectiveness. But to be downright honest, we must admit that the greatest problems of the church are not external, but they are internal. That has not always been so. We're not bothered today by badgering crowds or external oppositions like it used to be. fact is the most of us don't do enough to stir up the devil. We really don't. Too often the progress of the church is retarded because we stumble over members of our own team, and that happens in a lot of churches. Let me tell you a hypothetical story. Of course this is not real, but it's a hypothetical one. Two high school teams, one of them called the Ramblers and the other the Briar Hoppers, they had to be from Arkansas, I think. <laughs> Hope there's nobody here from Arkansas. They lined up on the field for their annual game. They always played each other in the final game of the season. The Ramblers had not lost a game. The Briar Hoppers also had a perfect season. They hadn't won a game all year long. <laughs> By the end of the third quarter, the score was 84 to zero. Halfway through the fourth quarter, the stands were nearly empty. Then a car backfired out on the parking lot, and they thought that the Ramblers thought it was the. Uh, Official announcing the end of the game. So they ran, didn't even take time to go to the shower. They gathered up their material, ran, got on the bus, headed for home. Three plays later, the Briarhopper scored. It was a field goal. And it was partially blocked. <laughs> but often the progress of the church is hindered by a like set of ridiculous circumstances. But, oh, my friends, when a church works together in harmony with a common goal, it will move forward and it will attract the people around about. It will attract the people to that church. Even the experience of entire sanctification won't make us all agree, but the experience will help us to disagree without being disagreeable. If we love the church, we'll be willing to make some sacrifices and take some calculated risks to make it the redemptive force that it should be in the world. It's my church. It isn't perfect, but I'm not either. and Therefore, I'm going to give it my loyalty and all of my devotion. The second point is the church is mine to defend the church has a set of rules and doctrinal statements which deserve our loyalty. But the doctrines of the church are sound. I'm glad to tell you that. And they have remained essentially the same since its beginning just about 100 years ago. We're going to celebrate the anniversary this fall. We believe that a man is born in sin, that he needs the work of regeneration to enjoy fellowship with God. We also believe that through the atoning blood, a person can be born again. And by the spirit of adoption, become members of the family of God with all of the blessings of that relationship. We also believe that the old sinful nature can be cleansed out of our heart. We call it entire sanctification, and that has not gone out of style. The heart can be filled with the Holy Spirit. And when that spiritual transaction takes place, we can be endued with power to live lives that are holy and be witnesses to those who are lost. We also believe that the experience of entire sanctification is a cure for instability and an uncharitable spirit. The Church of Nazarene has maintained a middle-of-the-road stance in expression. I like that. I really do. From between dry ritualism on one hand and empty emotionalism on the other. We believe that a person has a right to say amen or praise the Lord out loud without being made to feel that he's committed an unpardonable sin. You know, a lot of people have worn calluses on their Adam's apple in these days, choking back amens. They don't even say amen. I listened to Hagee this morning. He would said, let all the people praise God, and they'd stand up and clap. I'm, I'm going to start that someday, Start having people clap when I preach. The Bible says the joy of the Lord is our strength, and out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. That's from the Bible. Some people have become so afraid of fanaticism they've allowed the holy fire of enthusiasm to be extinguished. Some people that have been afraid of wildfire have never really been lit in the first place. That's I believe that it's about time that we as Nazarenes reclaim some of the territory that we have surrendered because of the fear of being called fanatic. You know, I haven't seen a fanatic in years. I really haven't. If I ever find one, I'm going to take his picture and frame it for inspiration. I'm going to post it on every bulletin board of every church and put it underneath. This is a fanatic because most Nazarenes have never seen one. (laughs) But the opposite extreme is equally as destructive because the kingdom of God comes not by observation. I believe in holy enthusiasm, but I want to, and I believe in some demonstration, but I want to be certain that it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. But to be downright honest, if I had to choose today between fanaticism and ritualism, you know what I'd choose? I'd choose fanaticism. You say, why would you do that? Because it's easier to slow down a fanatic than it is to raise the dead. That's (laughs) it. It's my church, and I'm committed to defend its doctrines and the spirit of the services. Now, this, and I know I won't get any amens on this. The church is mine to support. God's financial plan is still in effect. He still says in the Bible, bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse. Never has been the plan of God to finance the work of his kingdom with the endowments of the rich, but with a proportionate giving of all the members of the body of Christ. In spite of inflation, isn't it great that God hadn't raised it at all? It's still 10%. Everybody else is raised, but not God. When we pay the tithe and join, we, we join in partnership with God in the biggest business in the world. And all oh, of my friends, we get the best end of the bargain. We invest our puny resources and we become heirs of all that is God, all of the riches of glory. What a partnership. Heard about a new convert. A young fella came to church one Sunday and he had never been in church. Invitation was given. He went to the altar and he got saved. He said, I want to join this church. Well, they said you can join but you got to go through the membership class. So they said t- it'll start on Wednesday night. So they studied about regeneration, they studied about adoption, they studied about sanctification, all that. And so one Wednesday night they said, now we're going to talk about the tithe. He said, tithe? Never heard that. What in the world is the tithe? Well, they said, a tithe is a tenth of your income. He studied a little while, and he said, well, you know, I have a lot of bills. I don't know whether I could begin with a 10%. Would it be all right, Pastor, if I begin with a fourth and work my way up to a tenth? (laughs) The smart pastor said, you take all the time you want. (laughs) God operates his kingdom according to the law of inverse ratio. And he promised it to prosper those who are faithful. Listen to what he said. If you give, you'll get. And your gift will return to you in full and overflowing measure. If we become tight-fisted with God, we rob the church of his outreach. But we also rob ourselves of the blessing of partnership with God in the biggest business in the world. The church is mine to support. And if I'm a user of the church, I didn't say a member, I said user of the church, you owe it your tithes and your offerings. So the church is mine to support. Number four, I hadn't looked at my watch. I'm doing real good. (laughs) The church is mine to improve. It's always easier to see what's wrong with an organization than it is to become a part of its redemptive program, isn't it? Become involved in its improvement. When the church needs improvement, we all have a good place to begin. Numero uno. Do I have to translate that? I don't think so. When the church needs improvement, we have a good place to begin. Every once in a while, people say, you know what? Our church needs a good old-fashioned revival. And that's probably true no matter where you attend. The solution is ask God to build a revival fire in the pew where you're sitting and start the revival in your heart. Other people say, you know, our church needs to be more spiritual. And that's probably true, no matter where you attend. The solution, ask God to make the person who wears your hat and in your seat more spiritual, and the contagion will spread. My dream for my church, my friends, even at my age, and I've been in this church a long time, I've been preaching now for 65 to 70 years. My dream for my church is that we will Launch out into the deep where some big fish are. The shoreline's already overfished. The two great sins of the church are limited vision and an insincere commitment. And that happens in a lot of places. The future of the church is now in your hands, now in our hands. Let's launch out and let God use us to build his kingdom. Kierkegaard, did you ever hear of him? He was a Danish preacher. From back in the 1800s, he took delight in trying to inspire the Christians of Copenhagen, his native church. He'd become what he said was disenchanted with their religiosity and their evident lack of commitment to the work of God. He said, you give intellectual assent, all right. Isn't this a pretty picture? You give intellectual assent to the work of God, but you remain uncommitted and uninvolved. That happens with a lot of people. One Sunday, to illustrate his point, he used a delightful parable. He said, once upon a time, there was a make-believe land where only ducks lived. On Sunday morning, all of the ducks got up, they brushed their feathers, and then they waddled off to their duck church. They waddled down the aisle and into the pews. Then they squatted. The duck preacher waddled in, took his place behind the pulpit, and opened up his duck Bible. His sermon that Sunday was, God's great gift to ducks, wings. God has given us wings. With wings, you ducks can fly. With wings, you can mount up and fly like eagles. You can soar into the heaven. You can say goodbye to pens and fences. And you can enjoy the euphoria of the blue skies and complete freedom. He concluded his sermon by saying this, Now let us all give thanks to God for his great gift to us, wings! And they all the ducks of the congregation shouted, Amen, and then they waddled home. <laughs> May God give us a total disconsent with waddling and launch out into the deep fly with the wings that God has given us. Let me tell you just one more little story. Oh, it's only 18 minutes. I'll be done in two minutes. When the Tennessee Valley Authority was planning to build a dam and power plant for the area to provide electricity for the area, the Corps of Engineers ran across a mountaineer who refused to sell his property. His cabin was old. It was run down. It had no electricity, no sanitary facilities. They offered to build him a new cabin at no cost on another mountain or another place so it would be out of the road of their construction. But he refused to negotiate. He said, no, sir. I was born here. I was born in this cabin. I plan to stay in this cabin until I die. Finally, there was a young engineer, not long out, out of college, said, let me go and talk to the old fellow myself. And he went and sat down before open fire and talked about the various things, the beauty of the mountains, the mountain laurel. Finally, he won the confidence of this old fellow and began to talk about his family. And he said to him, old timer, tell me, why do you insist on staying here in this old cabin? The old fellow got up from his seat and placed another log on the open fire. He said, my grandfather built this cabin and started the fire on this hearth when I was just little. Before he died, he told my father, the keeping of the fire is now your responsibility. He said, my father was faithful to that responsibility. He never let the fire go out. So he said, you see, I can't move. My father's gone now. Keeping of the fire is my responsibility. The engineer, young engineer said, I think I have a plan that you'll like. Said, we'll build you that new cabin on the other side of the mountain. We'll include the modern facilities in that new cabin. We'll make everything that you want. Then he said, we'll move you and this hearth, fire and all, to the new cabin. And the old timer was satisfied. Sixty-seven years ago, a fire was built on the hearth of a new church in Medina, Ohio. And through the years, that fire was kept burning. The first four years was mine. And we handed on down to other pastors and faithful people. Now you've moved into a new location. That fire is still burning in this new facility. We could sense it this morning during the service. Now the keeping of the fire is your responsibility. May the day never come, my friends. When people will drive by this church, I have to say the fire doesn't burn here anymore. Keep the fire burning on the heart of your church. Thank you, Pastor.